Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the LSE. My name is Mark Henstridge, and I'm the Deputy Executive Director of the International Growth Centre, which is a joint initiative of both the LSE and Oxford University. The International Growth Centre has only been going for one year, so I just wanted to say that it is a venture which aims to bring the world's best research to bear on the policy questions in developing countries. It's a great pleasure for me to introduce Professor Paul Collier, who is Director of the Centre for the Study of African Economies at the University of Oxford, and he's also an academic co-director of the IGC. Paul has worked on the economics of Africa for all of his, all of his professional life, which has included time not just at Oxford, but also at Harvard and at the World Bank. One of the features of the Centre for the Study of African Economies, which we believe is very powerful, is his including in the work of the CSAE scholars from all over Africa, not just at the annual conference there, but also uh, as visiting scholars in Oxford. He's going to talk for 35 to 40 minutes, and we'll have some time after that for questions. And at the end, Paul's going to be able to assign some books I think he'll prefer that they be new copies of his latest book, <laughs> and they'll be on sale outside the theatre at the end. We are recording the event, and hope that we'll be able to podcast it on the LSE website. So, Paul, welcome. Thanks very much. First of all, thanks very much for coming to listen to me on such a lovely evening. Right? I, I know you've got alternatives, as the, as the airlines say, and I'll try and make it worth your while being here. Um, what, I, what I'm going to talk about is, is my latest book, The Plunder Planet, and, uh, and I, it's just out. I, th I think it's my best book, um, and I'm sure it's my most important. So. You'll have to be the judge of whether it's the best, but I'm, but I'm sure it's most important. Please read it. I'll tell you in, later why I want you to read it. Um, what is it about? Um, it's about uh, the economics of nature uh, and the management, and more particularly the mismanagement of nature. Natural assets are valuable, and they're vulnerable, and to date, they've been plundered. Now, plunder is not the sort of vocabulary that economists usually use, but let me give a precise economic meaning to plunder. I mean two things by it. One is where the natural assets that should belong to the many are expropriated by the few. And the other is where natural assets that should belong equally to the future are expropriated and used up by the present. Natural assets are vulnerable because they have no natural owners. The usual way in which assets acquire ownership is that they are made. Somebody makes them and that defines initial ownership. 
Natural assets are not made by man, they're just there. And that exposes them to one or both of these forms of plunder. What I'm going to say is trying to create a a marriage between um, the more pragmatic end of environmentalism and the more reasonable end of economics. That's the alliance I'm trying to build. And in the process, I'm afraid we will create a few enemies. I notice in the reviews of the Plundered Planet, which are very divided, um, I already have. We're going to wave bye-bye to the romantic environmentalists, and I'm going to tell you why in a moment. We're also going to wave bye-bye to some positions in economics, and I'll discuss that. So, natural assets are vulnerable to plunder because they have no natural owners unless governance comes along and defines ownership. So, natural assets are peculiarly in need of governance. Now, if we look at the domain of natural assets, and I should say the sign sometimes changes and there's also natural liabilities, If we look at the domain of natural assets and liabilities and we look at the domain of governance, there are two gigantic holes. And in what I'm going to say, I'm going to focus on those two gigantic holes. That does not mean that the rest of governance of natural assets and liabilities is great. Often it's pretty poor. But the two gigantic holes, it's it's catastrophic. So what are these two holes? One hole in governance is the countries that I work on, that the International Growth Centre works on, what I call the bottom billion. 60 or so little countries, very poor, typically very small, often weakly governed. And so weak governance in these countries collides with enormous value of natural assets. All these countries have got is their natural assets. And so they, there's a, the, their weak governance comes under intense pressure. And we're going to look at that. Second area where there's a hole in governance is those natural assets and natural liabilities that don't have the decency to respect man-made national frontiers. Right? And there's some natural assets which kind of straddle national frontiers. They're international natural assets and liabilities. Some examples, the fish of the high seas. Fish don't have passports. The carbon of the skies. The natural resources under the seas. The natural resources under the poles. Under the Arctic and the Antarctic. You know, more than two-thirds of the Earth's surface is actually that lot. It's oceans, Arctic, Antarctic. And until now, it hasn't mattered because technology hasn't been able to reach underneath these areas. And within the next few decades, technology will. And there'll be a scramble. Property rights are going to have to be defined. We just saw what's going to... a taste of things to come last month... Um, there was a deal between Norway and Russia 
and it was reported in the press as, uh, oh, you know, these, these two countries, so very different, actually managed to reach agreement very easily. No surprise they managed to reach agreement. What they both agreed to do was to expropriate great tracts of the Arctic which previously hadn't belonged to either of them. Right? That's the sort of deals we're going to get unless we're careful. I'll come back to that in a moment. First, I want to get the ethics a little bit sorted out. And the start of the Plunder Planet, the first, the first part of the book is about ethics. Until you get the ethics straight, you haven't got a hope of getting the economics straight. And so let me start with the ethics. And in particular, I mean, these two forms of plunder, anybody who's worked on developing countries knows about plunder of type one. The few expropriating from the many. Right? This has been happened again and again. The, you know, in resource extraction, it's the the alliance between a resource extraction company and a local elite, which is good for the resource extraction company, good for the local elite, and bad for ordinary citizens. That's plunder type one. That's front for for development economists. That's that's second nature to us. We know all about that. Plunder of type two the present expropriating from the future, that's much more in the territory of the environmentalists. That's what's second nature to them. But let me, let me challenge the environmentalists to, to think more closely about, so what is our responsibility to the future? And the romantic environmentalists at the moment command the high moral ground. Yeah? They are in the ethical ascendancy. In fact, I would say romantic environmentalism is the closest Britain has amongst youth to a new religion. Yeah? Um, and what is that religion? It's that nature is deified. Nature must be preserved. Yeah? Our obligation to the future is to hand on nature as we found it. Yeah? We are... In the, romantic, in the view of the romantic environmentalists, we are the curators of a set of natural artifacts. Nature is in the museum, we're the creators, and we hand it on to the next generation. Right? Now, that, first, as an ethical position, is fundamentally antipathetic to the fight out of poverty. And it's only by a lot of dishonesty that the romantic environmentalists succeed in denying that. Preserving nature as it is is simply not compatible with the ascent out of poverty. It never has been. So what is the ethical obligation towards the future? And there certainly is one. Well, the ethical obligation to the future, in my view, comes straight out of this idea that nature is special, but what's special about it is that since nobody created it, nobody has prop full property rights over it. The present doesn't have full property rights, full ownership over natural assets. And so we cannot burn them up. The future owns these things. But natural assets are just that. They're assets. They're valuable. 
And so what the future owns is a claim on value, not literally, necessarily, the claim on those artifacts. And the thought experiment that tests the, the, the ethical thought experiment, and thought experiments are, to moral philosophers, you know, what randomized controls are to, to economists. So the thought experiment in moral philosophy is the following. You put yourself in the position of a future generation, and you say, is this use of natural assets by the present generation okay by us? Or does it infringe our rights? Now, if the present generation takes the natural assets, burns them up, and uses them for unsustainable consumption, that is not okay by the future. It infringes their fundamental rights of ownership. But now suppose you're a, an impoverished country where the only assets are natural assets, and you have an opportunity to convert those natural assets into more productive assets, which then lifts the society out of poverty then that is okay by the future. The future will say, that's just do it, for goodness sake, get us out of poverty. And so the answer to the question, is it all right to use up natural assets, can only be answered pragmatically. Sometimes the answer will be yes, sometimes the answer will be no, depending upon how valuable the natural assets themselves would be to the future and how well we can convert these natural assets into other assets that are more productive. In low-income countries, there are a lot of opportunities, potentially, to transform low-yielding natural assets into much more productive real assets, which then lift the, economy, the society out of poverty. So that's, the, to my mind, the, the ethical position, that the future has ownership rights which we must not infringe. Note, in passing, how very different that ethical position is from the, that of the utilitarian economists. Yeah? Utilitarian economists, which is basically the whole of economics, um, have had to face this issue of the responsibilities of the future with one issue, which is climate change. Yeah? That's where we built models to compare the utility of the present, utility of the future. And in all honesty, we're pushing utilitarian economics way beyond the range in which it makes sense. Um, the normal domain of utilitarian economics, where we just, you know, we, we, we put in a utility function, what do we do? And we add the utils up. This is applied welfare economics. And we assume that everybody's the same, except that there's diminishing marginal utility. So the, the last pound going to a rich person yields fewer utils than the last pound going to a poor person. So, right. so that's, that's, the, the, that's applied welfare economics. And within, within the normal range of questions that that's applied to, it's fine. But applied to the idea that should we, um, should, how should we feel towards people in the 23rd century, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The idea that somebody in the 23rd century counts for exactly the same as my wife now to me. And if I privilege my wife over somebody in the 23rd century, I'm being unfair. This is cloud cuckoo land, right? Um, 
I think that that's not an ethics which can be generalized to ordinary citizens. Nobody except a few economic modelers believes that that's a reasonable view of the world. Right? Notice that some of the economic modelers agree with me and say nobody's going to buy into this sort of ethical framework. Therefore, we should take decisions about climate change out of the hands of democracy altogether. Right? That's one line of argument in the, the quantitative economic analysis of climate change. Take it off citizens because their ethics are all screwed up. They're not sufficiently saintly. Ridiculous. Right? What is a sensible ethical position that ordinary people can believe in? Not that somebody in the 23rd century is as dear to me as my wife. No. right? But I think people are prepared to accept that there are obligations that we have to the future over natural assets and liabilities, obligations of nature which are different from our obligations over other things. I'm not obliged to let some person in the 23rd century live a life of luxury. Why should I? But I am obliged to respect their rights to the natural assets that I have inherited from previous generations that I've not created. And so to that, mark, that extent, I believe in environmentalism, that nature is special. But it's special in that we have to hand on the value of nature to the future. We are not curators of natural artifacts. We are custodians of value. We have to pass on value to the future, not a set of natural artifacts in a museum. Now, I'm going to turn to these two holes of governance, and I'm going to start with the bottom billion. And I'm going to persuade you that um, what I'm going to say about the bottom billion and natural assets is hugely important. Uh, and here is what I say in the next few minutes is the one thing from this lecture that you will remember in a year's time. So here's the challenge. And to do it, we're going to start not with the poorest countries, we're going to start with the richest. We're going to take all the rich countries in the world, the OECD, and we're going to look at the average square mile of those rich countries. Collectively, the OECD is about a quarter of the Earth's land surface. We're going to take the typical square mile of the rich countries. And actually, we're going to look underneath it. I'm going to tell you that underneath that typical square mile, there are about $300,000 worth of subsoil assets. Right, got that? And now we're going to move from the rich world to the poor. We're going to move to Africa. We could move to the whole bottom billion with the same sort of things. We're going to move to Africa. And we're going to, look at, we're going to do the same thing, the average square mile of Africa. And we're going to look underneath that average square mile. And to make it interesting, you're going to tell me. Okay? And to make it manageable, um, I'm going to give you a choice. <laughs> Africa, it could be less than the OECD, and it could be more than the OECD, and you're going to vote. Huh? Who thinks that Africa is less than the OECD? And who thinks it's more than the OECD? And this is why you'll remember it 
because you're virtually all wrong. <laughs> and I have to say, you're virtually all very wrong. Uh, let me first reassure you. Last week, I tried this out on two uh, supposedly very sophisticated audiences. One um, was the chief executives of all the big investment portfolios in the world that happened to be meeting in London, and I did the keynote, so I tried it out on them. There were about 250 of them, and they, represent, they were managing some trillions of dollars of assets. Yeah? You did much better, right? They, they, got, they got zero, 100% said African war. Right? That was Monday morning, and then Tuesday evening I addressed uh, the, the DAC donor group, the, the, the Ida Replenishment Group in Paris, all the donors represented. I tried it out on them. They were as bad as the investment managers. Right? So you're, you're relatively better, right? But you're still not very good, right? <laughs> the right answer, so OECD, $300,000 per square mile. Africa, $60,000 per square mile. Why? If you think about it, that's vanishingly unlikely, because these are two huge areas of the Earth's surface, both almost a quarter of the Earth's land surface. Why such a vast, you know, statistically, this is so unlikely, it must be purposive. So if it's purposive, there are only really two explanations. Right? One is that God just doesn't like Africa, and everything we know about Africa means we cannot reject that possibility. Right? <laughs> and, and, the, and the other, the other is that I kind of cheated a little bit because the figures I gave you were for known subsoil assets. You know, I tried to find unknown subsoil assets and I just couldn't find the figures anywhere. You know. <laughs> what's, what's going on here is there's just been a lot less search and discovery in Africa. A lot less. Yeah? That's why they found us. Yeah? Now, almost certainly, there's at least as much down there as in the OECD. Probably more, because the OECD's been digging it out for 200 years. It's still got $300,000 worth left. Right? Now think what that means. In the next one to two decades, we've now got high global commodity prices. They're going to stay high, right? driven by Asia. High global commodity prices. Here is the last frontier on Earth. There's $240,000 worth at least to be found per square mile. It's going to be found by hook or by crook, probably by crook. What will that imply? It'll imply that you multiply by five what's coming out already. And of course, in one sense, why did you all put your hands up for more? Because in one sense, you're already right. That is already the big story for Africa. Natural assets are twice as big as invested assets. That's because invested assets are so pitiful. So natural assets are already the big story for Africa. Multiply by five and you get some sense of the scale of what's going to happen. This will dwarf everything else. Dwarf aid, dwarf remittances, dwarf foreign direct investment. Right? There's only one story over the next two decades. It's resource extraction. And it will flow to a lot of countries that at the moment are resource scarce. Yeah? Not just in Africa. I was hearing last month Afghanistan, they now suspect there are $2 trillion worth of subsoil assets in Afghanistan. Yeah? My God, right? Landlocked, small, 
badly governed, been hard enough without natural assets, and now you add $2 trillion worth of natural assets and what's gone out. So, this is a huge opportunity for transformation. Huge. It's a one-off opportunity. Right? Two decades' time, the resources, it's one, the resources will be depleted. Game over. They've either harnessed those resources or not. And if history repeats itself, it'll be a missed opportunity. This is why the plundered planet is so important. Because this is the big opportunity for the poorest countries on Earth. And if the future is like the past, it will be their big missed opportunity. And so it's a vital matter to make sure that history doesn't repeat itself. History doesn't have to repeat itself. Societies can learn. If you doubt that, look at what is going on in Germany now. Which is the country in Europe most adamantly concerned to resist inflation? It's Germany. Why? Because they lived through the worst hyperinflation and they learned. And so societies can learn, but what do they have to learn? And now there's nothing for it but to actually look at some economics and go through the whole decision chain on what it takes to harness natural assets for sustained development. So that's what we're going to do for the next 10 minutes or so, is go through the whole decision chain. The first link in that chain you already know is broken. It's just that you don't know you know it. Yeah? Because the first link in the chain is discover your natural assets. We know that's broken. That's why so little has been discovered relative to what's there. Yeah? In the book, I explain why that's gone wrong and how it can be fixed. But I'm not going to talk about it tonight because, in a way, it's a second-order problem. Um, as I say, by hook or by crook, these resources will be discovered. So let's move to the second link in the chain, which is to prevent plunder of type one. These are very valuable resources which should belong to the many. And so how can they be captured for the many? And the answer is that they've got to be captured by the government of the nation through a tax system. And that link in the chain has gone grotesquely wrong. I mean, let me give you one or two examples. The, let's take the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which, which incidentally is neither democratic nor a republic. <laughs> That's only recently been called the Congo. Um, exports of gold from Eastern Congo believed to be of the order of a billion dollars a year. Revenues flowing into the treasury of the DRC from exports of gold, $37,000. So, are resources being captured by the many? No. This is, this is huge uh, capture of stuff that should belong to the many by the few. So plunder is the order of the day, and it's already big time. 
these are some of the poorest societies on earth. So that link in the chain is broken. It's perfectly feasible to design and implement tax systems which do very much better than that. There are some basic economic principles. You tax what's observable, you tax what can't be gamed, you enforce it. There's basic principles of following a tax regime that have just not been followed. Let's move to the next link in the chain, which um, you can think of as avoid the Niger Delta. Um, the Niger Delta is a, is a terrible history in which the local inhabitants, their interests and their concerns were ignored for years. Oil was taken out of the delta, destroyed the local environment, but didn't benefit ordinary inhabitants. What's happened is then the protest has gradually got into organized violence, and what people in the delta now demand is ownership of the oil. And that, in my mind, is the wrong answer. That move is not ethical. And it's very important to recognize it's unethical. I fear, it's not happened yet, but I fear an alliance between the NGOs and the resource extraction companies. Sounds unlikely, but here's how it might happen. The resource extractor, the, the, the NGOs are suckers for the local. Right? If we can say the words local community, then NGOs think that you know, they can do no wrong. So local community, yes, they should have it. Right? Ownership rights. And what do the resource extraction companies care about? Well, actually, they care about getting the oil out without any trouble. They want a tranquil local population. And so there's a potential unholy alliance between the lovers of the local and the resource extraction companies that just want a quiescent local population. Who would lose out from that? Who would lose out is the citizens of the country. It's already bad enough that in places like Africa, ownership is split up into these 53 nations, which produces huge inequalities of luck. You know, Sarotomi Principes sitting on an oil field, 100,000 people. Ethiopia, sitting on nothing, 80 million people. That's bad enough. We can't do anything about that. But we can at least stop the greedy claims of the local. Right? It even happens in Sarotomi Principe, right? Sarotomi Principe is two little islands. Most of the people live on one, the oil's underneath the other one. Right? So guess what? Right? The 8,000 people underneath Principe have said, oh, it's ours. It's ours. Go away. Right? There's no limit once you go down the route of local. And of course it's not confined just to the, the poorest countries. Just because you paddle your kayak over a, several thousand feet over an oil field in northern Canada doesn't mean you own the oil field. Right? So these local claims have to be faced down. What is a reasonable claim is to generous and absolutely binding compensation for any costs and full participation in a transparent process in which these resources benefit the entire nation and most particularly who in the nation should they benefit the nation's children its future and of course Nigeria 
failed on both counts. It didn't produce any credible mechanism for, benefit, for compensating local people for the environmental costs. It didn't produce any mechanism for minimizing those costs. And nor did it produce any transparent mechanism by which the benefits from oil accrued to the children of Nigeria instead of an elderly and crooked elite. And so no wonder you get violent protest. But the outcome of that violent protest, the claims to ownership, are misguided. So that's the third link in the chain, dealing with the Delta situations. And there are many of them. There's going to be many more. Now we get to the, the last two links in the chain. The fourth link, so we've, we've, do, we, we've got the money in, and now the money's going to come out. And the fourth link in the chain is how do we use the money in a very simple choice between consumption and savings? Okay. How should we use it? Well, it's very obvious. The revenues are not sustainable. They come from depleting a depletable asset. And so, as you deplete the natural asset, you have to build up an offsetting asset. You don't have to do it dollar for dollar. If you can invest in assets that are more productive than the oil you take out of the ground, then you can, you can if you take a million dollars worth of oil out of the ground, you can still pass on assets that are worth a million dollars by investing less than a million dollars. You get a capital gain if you get a good enough investment process. But you've still got to save a substantial amount. You know, at the moment, governments don't even know what they're saving out of their natural revenues because they don't organize their budgets in such a way that you can tell. Why? Because they copy our budget processes. And our budget processes are just not designed to answer that question. There, most developed countries, revenues from natural resources are so small it's not worth worrying about. Yeah. Only two countries I can think of which are big resources from natural assets. One, one is Norway, which got it right, actually does identify all the money separately. The other is Britain, which got it wrong. We didn't identify the money separately. We treated it as if it was sustainable revenue. Right? We just lived through the biggest oil boom on earth. We spent it all. That's why we got the biggest fiscal deficit in Europe. Right? Africa can't afford our mistakes. We can't afford our mistakes. But. So, how would the national accounts, or the budget accounts, look different? First, you'd identify the revenues from unsustainable sources separately from the revenues from sustainable sources. And then you'd show for each type of revenue what the split between consumption and savings was. Now, for that to be meaningful, you actually have to have a distinct political process for those decisions. It's not a matter of just all the money flowing to the budget, you spend it, and then you retrofit some notional savings numbers. There has to be a political decision process for how much do you save out of sustainable revenues, and a distinct political decision process for how much do you save out of unsustainable revenues. Distinct in the same, it can be the same people taking the decision, but they have to recognize they're doing something different. 
So to date, that's not been in place. And just to run, keep running with the example of Nigeria, I, a couple of weeks ago I talked to the new Minister of Finance for Nigeria, the great guy. His first question to me was, are we saving enough from our oil revenues? So I checked it up. At the moment, they, at the, moment the oil revenues are just meeting uh, the recurrent expenditures. So at the present, the savings rate is zero. Is that enough? No. I did the figures right through from 1970 to 2003. The most generous interpretation you could put on it was that 10% of the revenues were saved. After 2003, the savings rate was slammed up because some reformers came in and they behaved sensibly. In the following four years, they paid off all Nigeria's debts and they accumulated $70 billion in foreign exchange savings. So that was prudence in practice. But that's rare, and it's been reversed. What assets should you acquire? So you save, and then what? And you know, there's, there's the one prudent model out there. I mentioned it's not ours, it's not Britain, unfortunately, it's Norway. Do you know 50 developing countries, their governments have asked the government of Norway for advice? 50. I deal a lot with the government of Norway. They're very worried. I mean, first of all, they can't handle 50 requests. And secondly, they know, as well as I do, that Norway's the wrong model. Right? Developing countries shouldn't be following what Norway's done. What Norway did, sensible enough for Norway, um, was that they put their savings, they gave those savings to those wise New York bankers to invest internationally. And why does that make sense for Norway? Because Norway literally has more invested capital per worker than any other country on earth. And so adding all that savings as more capital invested in Norway wouldn't yield as much as buying capital around the world, which is what Norway does. And now put yourself in the position of Sierra Leone or Ghana, which actually asked Norway, you know, can we do this model? We're looking at the chief economic advisor to the government of Ghana sitting in front of me. Right? Um, the, um, it makes no sense at all for countries like Ghana and Sierra Leone to say, oh, we'll just acquire capital around the world. It's obscene. They need the investment in the country. And that, comes, that brings me to the final link in the chain, which is the hardest. Why are these countries so short of capital? One major reason is that although they're short of capital, they're actually very bad at the investment process. And so they don't know how, they don't have the capacity to invest productively. That's what the IMF refers to as absorptive capacity constraints. Mark should know he used to work for the IMF. You'll recognize absorptive capacity constraints, won't you? Right? The IMF used to brandish this as a concept which meant, don't spend it. Give it to those New York bankers. Right? Now, the IMF is half right. There are absorptive capacity constraints. But the conclusion, therefore just give it to the New York bankers, is the wrong conclusion. The answer is, break those capacity constraints. Build the capacity to invest productively. And I call that phase investing in investing. 
building the capacity to invest well. It's the most vital phase. It's the hardest. It has three components to it, and I've not got time to tell you the three components, but then I've got to leave something for you to read in the book, right? So much for the chain of decisions. Now, unfortunately, that decision chain is just that. It's a chain. It's a weakest link problem. If any of those links break, what you get is plunder in one or other of the forms I've mentioned. The whole chain has to hold. It doesn't just have to hold once. There are no quick fixes in economics. It has to hold again and again for at least a generation. That's the quickest you can get from poverty to moderate prosperity. So how is that decision chain to hold again and again for a generation? I'm going to park that question. I'm going to answer it eventually. I want to park it for a little while and turn to that other hole in governance which has been hanging there, the international natural assets and liabilities, the carbon of the skies, the fish of the seas, and so forth. Now, because there's a lot uh, being written about carbon, um, I'm actually going to take fish. In the, in the book, there's a chapter on carbon, there's a chapter on fish, there's a chapter on agriculture, which is the, the chapter on agriculture is the most fun chapter in the book. But I'm going to take fish because people don't know a lot about fish. Right? Maybe you do, but most audiences don't. And fish, the fish of the oceans, is, is very straightforward. And the present mismanagement of the fish of the oceans is so astounding that once you've had a... It doesn't take long to get up to speed on fish. And once you're up to speed, you think, how can it be that we're mismanaging like this? Now... Fish, unlike oil, is a renewable natural asset. Renewable is good news. You don't always have to renew natural assets just because they could be renewed. Sometimes it's sensible not to renew them. Right? Thank God. You know, there used to be a forest where, where we're now sitting. Right? London used to be a forest. Thank God somebody decided, let's chop it down and build a city. Right? So they didn't renew the trees. Sometimes that's a very sensible use of a natural asset. So just because it's renewable doesn't mean it has to be renewed unless you're a romantic environmentalist. You know? But in the case of fish, let's go through that thought experiment. Right? The, 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 the moral, the moral ex thought experiment. So... If we eat the last fish and we say to the future, um, actually, we ate them all, um, but don't worry, we're going to leave you a lot of other stuff. We're going to leave you a lot of man-made assets. Um, here's a lot of video games that we've done. Right? Uh, what's the future going to say? Right? The future's likely to say, Video games, we got those, right? Actually, they went out about half a century ago. We got, we, we got everything you can make, we got. Right? If you're going to eat the last fish and try and compensate us with other stuff, 
you're just going to have to give us an awful lot of other stuff. In other words, the cost to us of compensating the future for plundering the planet's fish stock would be astronomic. And yet that is our ethical obligation to pass on equivalent value to the future. And so in that case, this, this is why you've got to be pragmatic. In that case, we've just got to pass on the fish. That's what the future is likely to want. And anything less than that is not meeting our ethical obligations to the future. Now, 50 years ago, it didn't matter because we didn't have the technology to catch all the fish. And so it was perfectly, if you wanted to go and catch a fish, you could go and catch a fish. Right? They, there were enough fish, they renewed themselves. Right? And now, we've got some wonderful fish-catching technology. Right? It's kind of like a giant hoover. Right? You can go around and go, and all the fish are gone. Right? And, and so, what fishermen are saying at the moment is, but we could catch them in the past. How dare you impose restrictions on us catching them now? Right? And the answer is, well, in the past, the technology didn't make, make fish scarce. Now, if we just use that technology with no restrictions, there'll be no fish. The fish will just be plundered. So to meet our ethical obligations, we have to impose restrictions on the fish catch. That's a no-brainer. Right? And now comes the economic bit. Once you impose restrictions, you create rents on fish. Many of you will be an econom economist, and so you'll know what I mean by rents on fish. Those of you who aren't, here's your three-second introduction to what rents are. Think of a barrel of oil. On average, it costs $7 to get a barrel of oil out of the ground. All the capital costs, the labor costs, the risk, and everything. It's worth about $80. $7 is cost. $73 is rent. That's rent. Right? It's the intrinsic value, the scarcity value of the oil, of the entitlement to get a barrel of oil. Who should own the rents on oil? Should it be the oil company? Of course not. Right? Should belong to the citizens of the country in which the oil is found. So let's have a look at the rents on fish. Global fishing industry is about an $80 billion a year industry. It's not very big. I reckon that with proper restrictions and modern fishing technology, the rents on fish might be around a quarter of their value. So let's say $20 billion. Who should have the rents on those fish? Should it be fishermen? Why, why the hell should fishermen have the rents on fish? They're getting paid all the cost of capital, all the cost of labor, all the risk in that $60 billion. Why should they run off with the $20 billion rents? That 20 billion, if it belongs to anybody, should belong to everybody, basically. The fish of the oceans is going to have to be created some property rights on the rents on them. Why should it just go to fishermen? So, in a sensibly run fishing regulation, fishermen would pay us, as citizens of the world, about 20 billion dollars a year for the rights to catch these fish. They don't. Instead, we pay fishermen $30 billion a year in subsidies to go catch fish. Yeah? 
So instead of them writing us a cheque for 20 billion, we write them a cheque for 30 billion. What do they do with that cheque for 30 billion? Well, they go catch fish. Right? That's why fish are being plundered so badly. And then it gets one stage worse. Because it doesn't even produce wealthy fishermen. What do the fishermen do? They invest excessively in fishing boats. And so the rents get dissipated in what economists call rent-seeking, which in this case is just far too many boats. This applies, incidentally, at the national level of fishing regulation as well. In America, they regulate by the brilliant idea of restricting the number of days when you can catch fish. And it's got more and more restrictive, so you can only catch fish for two or three days a year. Right? So there's this huge fishing fleet, which is then unleashed on fish for two or three days a year. Um, what that produces is a vast overinvestment in the fishing fleet, and then three days of plunder in which they scramble to catch fish in that, those few hours, catch anything they can find, and that produces what's called a bycatch, which might as well be called a bye-bycatch because it's bye-bye to all the little fish that are caught that should have been left to, to grow to bigger fish. Right? So that's the world fishing industry at the moment. That's how fish are managed. Right? And the outcome will be that we're spending $30 billion instead of getting $20 billion, and there'll be no fish. Our grandchildren just won't have ocean fish. By the time it's not economic to find fish, the fish can't find each other. And so they can't breed. They will die out. Now, I give you the example of fish because it's kind of really easy. You know, you've grasped the nature of the problem in, what, five minutes, right? And I believe any audience that spent that five minutes would see uh, we need to do something. Yeah? We don't want a world in which our grandchildren say, why are there no fish? Yeah? What's a fish? Yeah? And yet we're not doing it. Yeah? If we can't get fish right, we have frankly no hope whatsoever of getting carbon right. Carbon's complicated. Fish is little money. Carbon's big money. Really big money. Right? And so the fact that we can't get fish right in terms of global management is very worrying. And now let me come back to that question of how. How can we get fish right? How can we get plunder in the bottom billion right? And the answer is going to be the same. There's no substitute. Well, let me back off. What would the answer have been 15 years ago? The answer 15 years ago would have been get some good leaders. Yeah. Countries at the bottom billion would need some good leaders to take the wise decisions. And to solve fish and carbon you put a load of good leaders into a, a big conference hall like this, Kyoto, Copenhagen, and they come up with a, with a, with a global deal. Right? Doesn't work. Right? 
never did work very well, but it works an awful lot worse now. The capacity of leaders to take the global interest as opposed to the petty national interest has declined massively over the last 20 years. That's why, again and again, the international conference approach is failing. And so what's the, what's the alternative? And, and in the bottom billion, I mean, let me run with, with the most depressing example I know, which is Ghana. Here's the chief economic advisor, as I say, right? And why is Ghana so depressing? Because Ghana has a functioning democracy that is the envy of the rest of Africa. A well-functioning democracy. The, the, the government narrowly lost and stepped down and handed over power at the last election. Right? The, the benchmark of a good democracy. In 2006, Ghana had about the best economic policies in Africa. And then it discovered oil. By 2009, Ghana had still not got any oil of the, out of the ground, but it had spent two-thirds of the present value of the oil in those three years, and it had spent very badly. Gobin wasn't the economic advisor at the time, I can say that. Uh, so, leadership isn't enough. I knew the president of Ghana at the time. He'd done PPE at Oxford, right? Perfectly decent guy. Leadership wasn't enough. What happened in Ghana in that three years was there was huge pressure for both political parties to promise to spend. And so the election campaign became a contest in spending money. Who could promise to spend the most fastest? So what was wrong in Ghana was not leadership, it was peopleship. And it's the same with the global natural assets and liabilities. What's needed, what is essential, unavoidable, is that society by society we build a critical mass of people who are sufficiently up to speed on the issues. And that's what we've got to do. Now here, technology is on our side. Let me draw to a close with a story from a society that is much more repressive than any in the bottom billion, and that is China. And two years ago, you'll remember that there were earthquakes in China, which, um, and during those earthquakes, uh, schools uh, fell down and killed school children. And the reason those schools fell down was due to local corruption. Building regulations hadn't been honored because local officials had taken bribes. Yeah. Within 48 hours of that earthquake, ordinary Chinese citizens had used the net and mobile phones to do three things. First, they discovered why the schools had fallen down. Secondly, they discovered who in their locality in their local government had taken the bribes that had caused their school to fall down. And third, still within 48 hours, they'd organized street protests against those corrupt officials. There's a wonderful picture you can see on the, on the net of a Chinese local government official on his knees before a crowd of angry parents. 
Now, if that was possible in China two years ago, think what is possible in 10 years' time in the average country of the bottom billion, where the, the, the new technology has spread like wildfire. Mobile phone, a 22-fold increase in just the last eight years. Some of these societies have more advanced technology than we do. Google sent a team to Kenya not to show the Kenyans how to use a mobile phone network, but to learn how to run a mobile phone network. Right? So this is the hope, that it's now much easier to build a critical mass of informed opinion than it ever was. Who knows that technology better than anybody else? Young people. Right? The technology which to people of my age is a mystery to you is second nature. That's why I wrote The Plunder Planet in a way that young people can read it, just like the bottom billion. That's why I'm here tonight. We need to set off a wildfire of information building society by society that critical mass of people who understand the basic issues and discipline governments into taking the correct decisions. Please be part of that process. Thanks very much. We've got a bit of time for any questions. We'll take questions in groups of three. So, let's start with you. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, my name is Pasco Sabida. I'm an Environment and Development Master's student at the LSE. Um, I, I think I might agree with you on a fair amount. But there was, whilst not wanting to come across as a romantic environmentalist, like many of the young people out there, I think I, I slightly object to assets. I mean, I couldn't work out whether you're talking about purely non-renewable assets or moving on to renewable assets like forests. I think you were talking about both. For me, there's a slight problem of seeing assets as simply value. You're missing out some of the services. Forests, talk mm. about the Congo, talk about Ghana. Ecosystem services are not replaceable. Yeah. And there's been a big problem that we, they can't cut down these forests because you know, atmosphere creation, clean water creation. And there's been a big problem that we've cut down all of ours. So in a way, we're reliant on the whole world keeping theirs as a public good, a global public good, and obviously there's problems with that. And so is the solution, therefore, to pay for these, uh, pay for the value of those services. Uh, and secondly, with non-renewable resources, how does the exploitation of fossil fuels fit into the whole climate change paradigm that we're currently trying to yeah. face? Yeah, both good questions, yeah. Another one? Yes. Um, I was just wondering if you could clarify what you said at the end about sort of having you know, people hold their governments accountable. Doesn't that contradict with what you're saying about how people always just demand spending? And we've all seen in the developed countries mm -hmm. that we've all continued making choices on spending and government policies that aren't environmentally friendly. Yeah. One more. Hi, um, I know there's no quick answer to this, but um, considering natural resources are quite a source of violent conflict across developing countries, how do you think that can be resolved 
if natural resources, you know, they need to stop being plundered, but the, the source is so much violent conflict across the world. Do you have any thoughts about how that can be resolved? I don't quite can you hear me? Could, could you just um, speak it up a little yeah, bit? Yeah, can you hear that? Yeah. Okay. Um, I was just wondering, since natural resources are such a cause of violent conflict uh -huh. across the world, how you think, if the idea is to stop plunging them, how that... Oh, sorry, yeah. Okay. yeah. Good. They're all good enough questions that I'm going to go back to this microphone. Um, this is actually four questions. The first one is about forests. And uh, let, me, let me home in on the Brazilian rainforest as, a, as an example. Um, the discussion of the... There's, a, there's actually a whole chapter organized around the Brazilian rainforest. Um, and I didn't use the Brazilian rainforest as an example because it's really complicated. There are three different things, at least three different things going on. Okay. One is all the things I've been talking about. That is, um, you could, you could use, use up the rainforest, convert it into other assets. And there's a lot of pressure to do that um, from other poor Brazilians. You know? So if that was the only issue, could you use up the rainforest, reduce poverty elsewhere in Brazil? That's one, that's one issue. Right? Then there's a second issue, which is that uh, if we chop down the rainforest, we generate a lot of carbon. And that is a liability for the whole world in the future. Yeah. And so that would... The, the first issue is an ethical issue between poor Brazilians who don't live in the rainforest and the Brazilians in the rainforest. Yeah. The second ethical issue is between Brazilians and a, as a whole and uh, the rest of the world. Yeah. And it's not clear who should compensate whom. Suppose that the Brazilians chop the rainforest down, put out a lot of carbon. I mean, should, should the rest of the world pay Brazilians not to do that? Or should Brazil say, well, actually, if we're going to do that, we better compensate the rest of the world? Right? And if you want to get it clearer, suppose that rainforest was in America. Should the rest of the world pay America to keep the rainforest? Or should it say, no, you just don't have the right to chop the thing down without compensating it? But then there's a third issue in the rainforest, which is that the rainforest is the, the habitat, the local habitat, for people who know, who know no other world but the rainforest. And to my mind, that is the overarching issue. I mean, I know there are also issues of biodiversity, but let me just take that one. Because to my mind, um, let's go through this thought experiment can we imagine destroying the world that these people inhabit and then compensating them with something else? Yeah? And it seems to me that it's not, it's not credible. We, we, everything we know about the encounter of indigenous people with modernity says that that is a very difficult encounter. Do a thought experiment like this. Suppose that Martians come along and say, oh, look, Earth. By God, it's got, you know, it's fantastic. You know, we can dig it up. It's, look, fantastic. Yeah. 
very sorry, earthlings. We, you know, we're going to have to use Earth up. But don't worry. Don't worry. We're going to compensate you. There's a lovely place out on Neptune. And do you know, we're going to pay you 37,000 wiggle pops. You'll be all right, you know, 37,000 wiggle pops. And, you know, you'd have to say, sorry, but it doesn't mean anything to us. You know, if you're going to destroy our world, no, we can't be compensated for that. We want to live on Earth. And so that seems to me, in the case of rainforest, the overriding issue. That, now, does it mean that the, the people in that rainforest have to be preserved in aspect forevermore? No. But they have to engage with modernity at their rate of choice, not at our rate. Now, there are also issues of biodiversity which are actually a little bit analogous to carbon, so I won't go into that. But, but in, the, in, the, in the book, I do take all these issues. Okay, so, so no, I'm not sort of hell-bent on just burning up natural assets wherever I find them, no. Um, fossil fuels and coal, another really good example, but and let's, take, let's take a practical issue, Mozambique. Mozambique's got a lot of coal. Um, what should happen? Should the World Bank say, as its board is currently inclined to say, Sorry, you can't have loans to exploit that coal because it would generate a lot of carbon and that's bad for the world. Right? Is that ethical? No, it damn well isn't, right? Especially whilst Australia and America and China are opening up their coal fields at a rate of knots, right? What's the right way to tackle coal? And coal is, I, I take coal because coal is, is, the, is where it really cuts. That, um, Coal is a low value relative to the carbon it emits. Oil is high value relative to carbon. So any sensible pricing of carbon, a lot of coal should be left in the ground. But that's the way to deal with carbon. It's through the pricing of the emissions of carbon. Once we get that right globally, then the demand for coal will fall. And then the Mozambicans will say, oh dear, this coal isn't worth anything anymore. It's not worth getting it out of the ground. Right? What we shouldn't do is use our enormous power over these countries to force them to do what we're not prepared to do ourselves. Um, next question was about, so doesn't my example of what the people of Ghana demanded, spend, 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 doesn't that contradict what I said at the end about building a critical mass. No, that Ghana's democracy, and so it will and should adopt, the government should adopt policies that people want. But it's not inevitable that people want to plunder the future. Right? Let me give you the example of Zambia, which has plundered its future. It's used over the last decades, it's used up its copper and it's nothing to show for it. And as a Zambian friend said to me, what, when we've run out of copper, will our children say about us? And so this concept of a responsibility to the future is not a difficult concept. Any parent has that concept ticking in their brain. 
the failure in Ghana was not to let ordinary Ghanaian citizens get what they wanted. The failure was to explain the decision chain over the management of natural assets to ordinary Ghanaian citizens. This is not difficult concepts, the responsibilities to the future. Every family has run with that concept for millennia. And so it is possible to build a critical mass of people who understand the issues. But that critical mass has to be built. And in Ghana, it wasn't built. The critical mass has to be built before you get into this competitive scramble of promising. And that was the failure. But there's no substitute for building informed societies. Nor, if you think about it, should we want there to be a substitute for building informed societies? And finally, the question of, of, of violent conflict over natural resources. Well, of course, my previous book, Wars, Guns and Votes, was very much focused on the, as it were, the downside of natural assets. This scramble, the descent into violence, which a lot of societies have seen. The plundered planet is, more, is, is really focused on the upside potential. Because to my mind, the full tragedy of natural assets is not that they destroy society. They sometimes destroy societies. That is, of course, terrible. But even where they're just squandered, the fact that this one-off huge opportunity to get countries to prosperity is lost, that is the real tragedy. Um, and so, the, so in this book, I don't emphasize the, the, the downside risk of conflict. Um, but it's there. It's there. How do you head it off? Um, it's a mixture of transparent and equitable treatment of the, the future uh, and adequate security provisions. But basically, I believe that until governments build credible records of showing that they intend to use these resources to benefit all their future citizens, then the greedy local violent claims, um, will, you can expect no better. Time for three quick ones. Questions, please. Hi. As much as I want to believe that you can create critically and informed societies, I think it's very difficult. For, say, Norway, you have all the capacity in the world to make a critical society, but people keep being selfish short-term, and it's just very difficult for them when they're not like, in some kind of threat to actually believe that, that they should, say, not use all the oil money. And, yes, it's a mm. constant okay. issue. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Uh, in your book, you express support uh, for the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which is heavily supported by the Norwegian government uh, through NORAD uh, to improve the transparency of revenue flow from the oil companies to the state through the taxes and the royalties, and then uh, how that money is appropriated to public goods. So I'd like you to comment on the other direction of revenue through the citizen and the state. 
specifically uh, the fiscal social contract that exists through effective citizen taxation and the notion that waterfalls of oil revenues uh, and rents can uh, preclude the need of a government to tax its citizens. Mm. So in light of Uganda and Ghana, these you know, huge yeah. oil discoveries, yeah, yeah. should we be interested this, in this? And should uh, NORAD and the Oil for Development Program and EITI and yourself through this book be more focused as well uh, on taxation? Mm -hmm. Last one from, from over here. I wanted to make a comment on um, what you'd said about budgeting, uh, and I, I agree, but I wanted to offer an interpretation. Um, I think some people would say uh, sources of revenue for governments are fungible, um, and surely what really matters in government budgets is the overall number. How much are you saving, or how much are you, you know, how big a deficit are you running? Um, but for me, uh, the point about splitting out those um, revenues from sustainable and unsustainable sources is that it shows how much you could have saved and how much you should have saved relative to, to what was possible. So, so I might say that you should save revenues from unsustainable environmental sources and only consume the annualized value. And with sustainable sources, one might say you should um, only uh, consume the annual value, so you know, you're, not, you're not running them down now. Yeah. Okay. Um, good. Norway. Um, so the first is, is, is how hard it is to build an informed citizenry in Norway um, to support what Norway is doing. Now, fortunately, it's harder, and this, this will take a, take a little leap, but it's harder to build an informed citizenry in Norway for what the Norwegian government is doing than it would be to build an informed citizenry in Ghana for what the Ghanaian government should be doing. Yeah. Now let me defend that. It's not because Norwegians are dumber than Ghanaians. Right? It's not that. It's that what the Norwegian government is doing, remember, is putting the savings into those foreign banks, piling up financial assets. And that has two really kind of unfortunate consequences. One is those financial assets are very, very liquid. You know? You only need one plundering politician who says, let's spend it, um, and you've had it. And that is actually the history of most of these future generation funds, financial assets abroad. They never get to the future generation. They're a transfer from a prudent government that puts the money in to some lunatic imprudent government that takes it out. Uh, and the average duration between putting it in and putting it out is about seven years or something. You know? So um, uh, that's one reason why it's harder. It's so liquid. And the other is manifestly who's benefiting from all this? Not Norwegians because it's not being invested in Norway. Norwegians are turning themselves into, into rentiers. 
You know, they're living off the interest, but they're not building their economy. Whereas what Ghana should be doing, and Sierra Leone and so on, is investing in the nation's future, building the future of the nation's children, building the schools, building the factories that will create jobs for those children when they come out of school. And that is a much, much easier sell, much easier thing for citizens to grasp than why they should be putting the money in New York banks. Right? Norway is turning its citizens into rentiers, and that's always going to be a hard sell. But Ghana, Sierra Leone, should be saying, this is our chance to catch up with the rest of the world. And that's not a difficult thing to understand. Right? Let me turn to... EITI, and there, there was actually a um, <coughs> link question to the, the need for citizen taxation, um, and that, these are sophisticated questions. The, the um, first, let me say I'm a big supporter of EITI. Um, EITI was the right place to start, which is the transparency of revenues, but it would just be the wrong place to stop. There's a whole decision chain, both upstream and downstream, from transparency of revenues. And that decision chain has to be understood. And the danger in EITI, which they recognize very much, is that all the oxygen just gets on that issue of other revenues published or not, rather than how the, all the upstream issues of how the contract, contracts award and so on, and all the downstream issues of how the money's spent. One of the things I've done is build a, with a, with a, one of the ideas floated in the bottom billion was to, to create something called a natural resource charter. And in the book, I describe how a bunch of readers of the bottom billion came together and said, that's doable, let's do it. And so there now is a natural resource charter, which you can just go onto on a website, naturalresourcecharter.org. And it's a free citizen website on this decision chain. And just send it to your friends. Citizen taxation. Right? The, we've now got quite a sophisticated theoretical understanding of how effective states got built in the countries that now have effective states. And the, the argument ran that one of the first things that effective states built was a capacity to tax citizens. And that had two, two effects. One is it provoked citizens into demanding accountability of government. And the other is it gave the government an interest in building the economy because it captured the flow of revenue coming in. And countries which have a lot of natural assets, because they don't need the revenue, more revenue, they don't go through that process <coughs> of building the capacity to tax. And if you think about it, sometimes they shouldn't because if they build a capacity to tax, they'd be getting so much revenue coming in um, the, the, the size of the state will be completely imbalanced relative to the, the size of the private economy. So the challenge is partly to build a tax system, but it's also very often um, to, um, to learn to, to have an accountable state even though taxes are quite modest. Um, the latest developments in Nigeria just the last year or two are actually very interesting because Nigeria has 36 states and you get a lot of variation in states. 
And there's one state which has built local tax capacity, and that's Lagos. And it's very interesting what's unfolding there, because what's unfolding is indeed an accountable government. Um, so Lagos is getting streets ahead of the other states because it's actually building this tax base, citizen pressure for accountability, delivery of services paid for by taxation. Um, the final question, a very sophisticated question about budgeting. And um, yes, the, for years, what the IMF was advocating um, was precisely contrary to what I think and what I'm advocating. The IMF took the view, all you want is a common pot. All the money, and it's called integrated budgets. Right? This is fiscal economics 101. You put all the money in a common pot and then you decide how to use it. Right? And fiscal economics 101 is fine for economies of 101, but it's no good for resource-rich economies. Because resource-rich economies do have these two fundamentally different streams of revenue Who's, because, they're because one's sustainable, one's unsustainable, the right savings rates out of those two streams have to be different, and the citizens and the government have to know what the savings rates are. They actually have to take decisions as to what the appropriate savings rates are on each of these two streams. You don't get the common pot, take a decision, and then back out the other decisions I mean, let me give you. Let me close. This is probably our last remark altogether. With I, I, I discussed this with the um, finance minister from the Cameroon about four months ago. We went through it all, and he understood, and he looked really pretty forlorn. Um, and then he posed the following question to me. He said, "What happens?" if all your revenues are unsustainable and your consumption rate out of those unsustainable revenues is 100%, because that's the Cameroon. Yeah. They've had the common pot. They took a decision on the common pot. Yeah. And he realized how wrong it had been. And the final irony is Cameroon is so depleted its oil that eventually the oil's going to be history. Most of Cameroon's oil is behind it, not in front of it. Right? And so that's what you get from the common pot. A big mistake. Thank you. <laughs>